Last time, Brother Mike finished chapter, chapter 1. We're moving a little slowly through this letter. This letter is so packed, that is, there's so much information confined together or packed together in a small space. That's what we mean by packed. Sometimes when the uh, pastor or preacher comes and uh, they say, I need to unpack that, that means it's tightly wrapped. There's a lot in there, and unpacking it kind of spreads it out a little bit to make it clearer. And hopefully I'll be able to do that today. Chapter 1 was an excellent chapter, excellent start. And I'll be reviewing that just a little bit. I don't want to get too detailed with it, but um, everything that I'll be talking about today, uh, in one sense, it's in chapter 1. It comes, my, my lesson today, or our lesson today, uh, comes out of chapter 1 in one sense, but it's a little addition to that as well. So I think to set the stage and the context, we have to review a little bit of chapter 1. Obviously, I don't plan to reteach chapter 1, but at least uh, set the context, primarily to set the context. As you know, we're going through the letter to the Colossians. And we're in chapter 2 now. And the theme of this wonderful letter is the all-sufficiency of Christ. Now, we basically say that each time we come up here because it's true. And also, we're trying to reiterate that to reinforce it because we have difficulties in life, and Christ is our sufficiency. He's our sufficiency in everything. No matter what it is, there's no situation too large. There's no situation too small. Uh, no, there's no situation too mundane to call upon him to help us through that particular situation. Because he is our savior. He's the one that we can lean on. He's the one that we can trust in. Whatever it is we're going through. And that's part of my encouragement this morning to all of us, even to myself. And the theme of our particular passage, which is Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, is encouraging fellow believers that are being threatened by false teaching or error to come to a more complete understanding of the person of Christ. And so that's our theme in our passage this morning. I have an outline for you this morning. Uh, one of the things that a viable and a healthy, comp healthy company does, or an organization, they're continually evaluating their condition or the state that they're in. That goes on on an ongoing basis. It sometimes goes, it goes on a lot of times behind the scenes. Many of the employees don't see it. They're not aware of it. But this business is always evaluating its condition or analyzing its condition. There's an acronym for that. It's called SWOT or SWOT. They do a, what's called a SWOT analysis. That is, they evaluate their strengths to see how strong they are and their opportunities for other business and so forth. They evaluate their weaknesses to see where they need to improve in some way. They evaluate the opportunities, potential opportunities for growth and improve profits and so forth. And they also evaluate their threats. Every business has a threat because there are no businesses that exist that are on their own. That is, they don't, every business usually has a competition or a competitor of some kind. 
I remember when I was in the business world, we had all kinds of competitors. I didn't even understand that there, I was in the oil business, and I didn't know that there were that many oil businesses in this country. <laughs> I mean, once I got into uh, the oil businesses and business and started calling on customers and selling lubricants, which is what I did, I found out that there were a, a ton of oil companies. I said, who? I'd heard of, I worked with Mobile, I'd heard of Exxon, I'd heard of Texaco, I've heard of Chevron, but there were so many others I'd never heard of. They were a competitor of mine. They were a potential threat to me. Even though the company I worked with may have been a hundred times larger than them, but they sold some products were similar to some of the products that I sold, and as a result of that, they were a potential threat. I had to be aware of them. I had to understand how they functioned, how, they, how their products worked, how good they were, and how they marketed them and so forth. And as a result of that, I had to be continually analyzing the marketplace as well as the other, my business, as well as the other companies that, com that I competed with. So that's important not only in the marketplace and in other organizations, but also in the Christian life. In the Christian life, there's strengths. We have strengths. This church has strengths. This church has weaknesses. There's potential opportunities also for this church, as well as threats. There are threats to this church. No matter how viable a business is, there's always threats to it. And as a result, they have to be uh, analyzing on an ongoing basis potential threats. So do we. We have to be looking at potential threats. And that's one of the things that we'll be talking about this morning. There was a potential threat in Colossae, in the Lycos River Valley. That was a threat to them. As we learned already, they were doing well. Paul was commending them. He was commending them for their faith in Christ. He was commending them for their love for one another. He was commending them regarding the hope that they have because they believed in the gospel. But there was also a threat. There was a threat. The threat was even extant or prevalent at the time of the writing of this letter. It may not have made <clears throat> any inroads yet, but it was still there. And those who were threatening that church were called false teachers. They were called false teachers, and they may have been already at work trying to persuade some of the believers in those churches there. So there's always a threat. So we never want to overlook that, that there's a threat to our Christian spiritual health. And so we want to be aware of that. And the Apostle Paul, what happened here is that Epaphras, we've talked about him before, was no doubt the pastor of those churches, at least the one at Colossae. And he was the one who perhaps evangelized that area, the whole area of the Lycos Valley, which included the city of Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. There were churches in all of those cities. And you may ask the question, how could he be the one to evangelize them? Because God had called him, apparently, to do that. And what he did was, he heard about Paul at this particular time when this was going on. Paul was in Ephesus on his third missionary journey. He was in Ephesus. and spent, In fact, he spent quite a bit of time there, two plus years, perhaps close to three years. And he, he spent time evangelizing, instructing, 
exhorting, encouraging, and all of those things. And no doubt, Epaphras came to Ephesus during that time, and he heard the gospel. He became acquainted with Paul. He was excited about the gospel. He believed in the gospel. And he went back to that area, the Lycus Valley, and he evangelized that area and planted some churches there. And so everything was going well. Everything was going well. In fact, uh, Paul wanted to make sure that the Colossians knew that they had heard the biblical gospel. I think it's about time for me to open my Bible. That they had heard the biblical gospel. So I just wanted to review a little bit of what had gone on. Listen, to, turn to chapter 1. I'm just going to, for way of review here. In chapter 1, the apostle said, uh, pick it up in verse 6. But at the end of verse 5, chapter 1, of the whole verse, he says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. This is where the hope is found. This is where our hope is found. It's found in the gospel. They had heard the gospel. They had believed the gospel. They were obeying the gospel. And Paul says, which has come to you in verse 6. It had to come to them just as it has come everywhere else in the world where it had gone, and it was bearing fruit among them and increasing. That is, they were converted, they were living out the gospel, and then they were proclaiming the gospel. It was bearing fruit in their lives, and they were spreading it. And notice verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras. They learned the gospel from Epaphras. Notice it, it didn't say they heard the gospel from him. They learn the gospel from him. The gospel is to be taught. The gospel is all-inclusive. It's all-comprehensive. Not only to be saved, but also to learn how to live, to learn how to grow in the faith. And that's what was going on there. And Paul spoke very highly of this man. Notice what he says in verse 7. Our beloved fellow slave. In other words, he was participating in the same ministry that Paul was participating in. Paul calls himself a slave. I'm a slave. You're a slave. We're all slaves of Christ. If you're a believer, you are a slave of Jesus Christ. Not only was he a slave, he was a faithful servant or a faithful minister of Christ, which implies that he was faithful in terms of diligence in carrying out the ministry that God had given him. And not, and not only that, he was also faithful in handling the word of God properly. He wasn't trying to twist it or distort it or to change it in any way. And as a result of that, these people in this area received the biblical gospel, even though it wasn't brought to them by an apostle directly. But it came through a faithful servant, even though Paul was the one who preached it and proclaimed it and taught it to Epaphras. Epaphras took it to the, back to his home area, which is a wonderful thing. We see how Paul had prayed for them. In verses 9 through 14. I'm not going to go through all of this. And Paul also used exalted language in verses 15 through 21 or so, talking about how great Christ is, his preeminence. Brother Jordan gave us a great message on that, both two messages. He exalted, he's a preeminent in eternity, he's preeminent in creation, he's preeminent in the church, he's preeminent in reconciliation. And so he wanted them to know that. And then in the last few Sundays, Brother Mike taught us verses 24 through 29, and this relates to Paul's ministry. His 
global ministry of the gospel, his calling by Christ, he's put into service by Christ to proclaim the gospel globally, to proclaim it primarily to the Gentiles, but he didn't exclude the Jews. In fact, he went to the Jews first. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says the gospel, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew, what? First, and also to the Greek. So what, he, what Paul would normally do in his missionary journeys, he would actually go into the synagogue. That's where Jews were. He would go to the synagogue, and there was also some converted Gentiles to Judaism, and there were some God-fearers who had not been converted to Judaism yet, and he would proclaim the gospel. They usually had a Bible there, a copy of the Hebrew Scriptures, but they may have been translated into Greek. They had the Septuagint. And Paul would read that and preach from that in the gospel, and so people would be saved. So, but in these, but this case here, he talks about his ministry globally, and let me just look at a few verses here. In the end of verse 23, he talks about his ministry, and he says at the end of verse 23, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Notice that he said, I was made a minister. Paul did not volunteer for this. He was called by Christ and made a minister or a servant of the gospel. In verse 24, I just want to read the first part of this. Notice what he says. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That's kind of an unusual statement, isn't it? Paul rejoices in his sufferings. Why do you think he did that? He did it because Christ had told him he was going to show him how much he would suffer for Christ's sake. And so when Paul was suffering, that led him, that confirmed that he was actually proclaiming the gospel, that he was doing what Christ had called him to do. And the same is true with us. If we're suffering for Christ's sake, for Christ's sake, that means that we are doing what Christ has commanded us to do because we are to have trials and difficulties in this life, and we will have them. And then in verse 25, of this, of which, really, I was made a minister. Again, he was made a minister. And God had given him the gospel to take to the then known world. But I just want to read verses 28 and 29, because that flows over into our text. He says, verse 28, we proclaim him. The him here refers to Christ, admonishing, that is, correcting and exhorting every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. What's the purpose of this? So that we may present every man complete in Christ. Brother Mike already told us that the gospel was not only for salvation, but it's also for building up in the faith in order that we may become more and more like Christ. And that's what Paul is, that's what's on his mind here. Not only does he evangelize, but he wants to fulfill the entire Great Commission, to make disciples. And then in verse 29, for this purpose, this is why he was doing that, I also labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. And that carries us over into verse 1 of chapter 2. So let's read our text for this morning. Verse 1, chapter 2. For I want you to know, and I, let, me just, let me just say something as I read this. I got so accustomed 
to Paul using the word brethren in First and Second Thessalonians, that when I first read this, I said brethren. <laughs> I want you to know brethren. You remember that? <laughs> but anyway, let's start over. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on, on, on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. So notice that Paul begins this first verse <clears throat> with the word for, with the word for. This implies that he is connecting this, or this is closely connected to the verse that he's going to give us here in verse 1. What Paul had just said in verse 29, and that paragraph, is closely connected or related to what we're going to read here. For connects back. I want you to know. I want you to know refers to what he's going to say. And there are two words that are used here. There's a form of the same word, actually. There are two words, but there's the form of the same word. Now, back up in verse 29, where he says, For this purpose also I labor, which means he's working to the point of exhaustion. He's spending himself, striving. You see the word striving in verse 29? And then in verse 1 of chapter 2, for I want you to know how great a struggle. Struggle and striving come from the same root word. In verse 29, striving is in the verb form, and in verse 1 of chapter 2, it's in the noun form. And he wanted these believers in the Lycus River Valley area to know that. He wanted them to know what a struggle he had on their behalf. And this refers to three different areas or three different cities or churches. Laodicea, it refers to those he's speaking to in this letter directly, uh, those in Colossae, and for all those who have not personally seen my face. This is absolutely amazing. The love and the concern that Paul had for these believers even though he was not the one who personally or directly evangelized them, and he had never seen them. He'd only seen a few of them, perhaps. But he's concerned about their welfare. He's concerned about their well-being. And he's also want them to know that even though I didn't come there and evangelize you, even though I haven't been teaching you directly, I've been striving and laboring and working on your behalf. Because he was working on their behalf, even though they didn't know it, when he was in Ephesus, teaching, preaching, and exhorting there. He was working on their behalf. He was laboring on their behalf. He was striving on their behalf. Because he was proclaiming the gospel there, 
Epaphras came, he heard it, and he took it to them. So Paul was struggling for them. The word struggle is from the word agona, A-G-O-N-A, agona. It, it's, our English word is agony. This is where we get agony from. And it's on your notes there. It means to struggle. It means to struggle against opposition. It's, it's when a person is under a great strain trying to accomplish something. It's a competition. It's a fight. It's an intense exertion. I like that one. It's an intense exertion. Right now, in the United States, in uh, Ohio, in Cincinnati, the professional tennis players are playing. Anybody watch tennis? Anybody? You watch it? Yeah, that's right. You play it. The, the professional tennis players are, have, came, have come to America, and they're playing. Today is the finals for that event. And if you watch these athletes, they are, they are strained. They exert themselves. They use energy. They are striving to accomplish. They hit that ball really hard across the net. Each player, the opponent over here, the opponent over here, they hit it really hard. They may hit it, the person may be in the center, they hit it in this corner over here. They have to run over there, strive, run over there to get it back across the net. And then that person over there, now instead of hitting it back to this corner, they may hit it to this corner. And the person is running from this corner to get over to this corner because the ball is coming over there, and then they may hit it behind them. It's very difficult to all of a sudden be going this way and then turn around because the ball is behind you. They are striving. I guess, I guess Paul loves sports. He always talked about sports in many of his letters. I love sports as well. One thing about sports is these athletes, they work hard. They train hard. They sacrifice. They take care of their bodies, most of them do. They eat proper foods and the proper diet so that they could be at their peak, at their best, when they're in the arena, wherever they are performing. I guess by way of application, what about us? How do we take care of our spiritual life? How do we take care of our souls? Do we feed our souls the proper spiritual food? Do we, how, what about our prayer lives? What about our fellowship with other believers? What about our service in the context of the local church? So, <clears throat> so Paul was concerned that they knew how he was laboring on their behalf. And I love this part where it says, and the latter part of verse 1 says, and for all those who had not personally seen my face. Why do you think Paul was so concerned about these people? Think about that. He had never seen them. He's seen a few of them. Most of them had never seen him. Maybe just a few. Why do you think he was such a had so much concern for them and laboring so hard for them? His love for the church. Why do you think he had such a love for the church? His love for Christ. Paul loved Jesus Christ. And as Pastor Tom has been teaching us through 1 John, if we love God, we love whom? His people, his church. We cannot love God. It tells us that even in 1 John. We cannot love God if we don't love what he loves, if we don't love his people. So Paul had a great love for the church because he loved Jesus Christ. And not only that, he wanted to be obedient, as he says in some places in Acts, to the heavenly vision. When, Paul, when, the, when Christ called him and commissioned him, he wanted to be obedient to that. 
because he commissioned him. If we go back to Acts chapter 9, that particular one right there, we see that Christ called him and appointed him to proclaim the gospel to, the, to a group of people here. Notice chapter 9, verse 15 of Acts. But the Lord said to him, now the him here is not Paul. The him here is Ananias. Because Ananias was hesitant. Ananias was in Damascus, and he was hesitant to go to Paul. Why do you think so? He knew who Paul was, but he knew who he was prior to conversion, prior to his encounter with Christ. But the Lord said to him, go. For why? He's a chosen vessel or instrument of mine to bear my name, where? Before the Gentiles, that's first, and kings and the sons of Israel. And notice what else he told him to say. For I will show him how much he must. The word must here is an absolute necessity. Must is an absolute necessity. How much he must suffer for my namesake. So that's why Paul rejoiced in his suffering on behalf of those to whom he was ministering. Because he knew that God's purpose for him was being accomplished, was being carried out. So they had never seen his face, but he loved them. He loved all believers and he wanted to do whatever God had cho appointed him to do in, for their spiritual welfare or their spiritual well-being. What do you think part of the struggle may have been? What do you think part of the struggle may have been? One thing we can be assured of, assured of is prayer. Paul labored in prayer along with Epaphras. Look at verse 12 of chapter 4. Look at verse 12 of chapter 4. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings. Because Epaphras had come to Paul in the prison cell there, or the house arrest where he was located in Rome, sends you his greetings. Notice, always laboring. The word that's translated laboring here is the same word that's in verse 29 of chapter 1. Always agonizing, always striving, earnestly for you doing what? In his prayers. In his prayers. And I'm sure Paul was with him because he knew he was doing it. He was praying along with him. That you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. What a prayer. What a prayer. Just think about the contents of what he was praying. We don't know everything he was praying, but the purpose of his praying was that you may stand perfect or complete and fully assured in all the will of God. That's the way we want to pray. Now, we don't, over, we don't want to overlook the physical aspects of our needs, but we don't want to stop there. We want to pray for the physical aspects of our needs the emotional aspects of our needs, the needs of our whole beings. But at the same time, we want God to use that to impact our spiritual lives. In other words, we can pray for a sickness, we can pray for a disease, that God will, take, will address that. But at the same time, we want to be praying for the spiritual life of that person 
in order that they may have the wisdom that they need, in order to know how to maneuver through that and still be honoring Christ. Sometimes things can be so painful. They can be difficult for us to want to even pray. That's why we pray for each other. And so our focus is more on the physical aspect of whatever that need might be, but at the same time, Paul wants us to be praying, or God wants us to be praying, for the spiritual needs and the spiritual well-being of our fellow believers in Christ. So we know that it was prayer. And know why, look at verse 13, for I testify for him, or concerning him, that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Now, Hierapolis may have been what's referred to here as, and the rest of those who had not seen my face. He may have been referring to those who in Hierapolis. But Paul wrote the, the letter to the Romans also, and he had never been there. So it could refer to others beside these, but in the context here, it probably refers to those in Hierapolis as well as those in Laodicea and Colossae. We don't know why Paul left Hierapolis off, but uh, we see it here in verse 13 of chapter 4. So Paul was struggling in prayer along with Epaphras on their behalf. And his ministry in general, and, and the prosecution or the proclamation of the gospel, he was struggling because he always had opposition. He always had opposition. There was always those who were opposed to Paul preaching the biblical Christ. Basically, wherever he went, he usually would get run out of town because the Jews didn't want to hear about Christ. They didn't believe that he was Messiah, even though some believed, but many of them did not believe, and they wanted to run him out of town. So he was struggling during that aspect of his ministry. Also, there was always false teachers. Usually people, false teachers followed Paul wherever he went to unsettle the people, those who had come to faith in Jesus Christ, to unsettle them, to, to disturb them, to stir them up, to make them, to try to persuade them to disbelieve in Christ or believe in Christ, but something else as well. And that's part of the purpose of our passage we'll talk about in a moment. So Paul labored, he struggled on behalf of believers. And he wanted them to know that. Let's look at a second verse 2. The question is now, why did Paul labor and struggle on behalf of these Christians? Notice what he says in verse 2. He begins in our, in our language here with that. This is a purpose clause, as we might say. That, or so that, or in order that, their hearts may be encouraged. That their hearts may be encouraged. So letter D under Roman numeral 1 I have encouragement, that their hearts may be encouraged. In order for us to understand what Paul is really saying here, we must look at a couple of key ver uh, terms here in this verse. Number one, he uses the word hearts, that their hearts may be encouraged. Now, when we look at the word heart, or think about the word heart, from an English perspective, we think of the seat of the emotions, Right? That's what you usually think about. But it's much more than that. The heart, really, in a nutshell, is a person's whole inner being. It's not only, it is the seat of the emotions, that's where the emotions 
take place are usually or in the bowels or the stomach area. But the heart refers basically to the inner man. This is where thinking takes place. This is where the will takes place. This is where decisions are made in the heart, in the inner man. And Paul wanted their, their hearts to be encouraged, to be encouraged, to be settled. The word encouraged here is from a very important word in the Greek te- uh, text. It refers to, it's translated encourage here, it refers to, literally it refers to, to call alongside, to call alongside, to do something. It's a compound word, para kaleo. It's used many times in the New Testament. It's actually being used more frequently than we may sometimes recognize it because it can be used in so many different ways. It means to encourage. It means to comfort. It means to, depending on the use of it, it means to urge. It can be used as a command. It means to exhort and so on. I urge you, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that word, I urge you because of the mercies of God, because of all that God has done for you, do this. That's the same word as this one here, and so forth. So it's a very broad, used used word. Even when we talk about the... in the Gospels, in John, especially when we talk about the comforter, even that word is a form of this same word. Jesus is the, or the Holy Spirit is the encourager, the comforter. He's also the encourager. You could translate it encourager or the strengthener. We want to be encouraged. We need to be encouraged in our hearts. Uh, Douglas Moo, who was one of the, who wrote a commentary on the book of Colossians and Philemon, he says this. He says, encouraged in the heart, or to have hearts encouraged, is therefore a way of referring to an encouragement that touches the deepest part of our being and that affects every aspect of our person. Because we can become unsettled. We can become unsettled. When things are going, difficult challenges and difficult things are going on in our lives, we can become unsettled. And I believe that one of the, that many responsibilities we have toward one another, or toward each other. The Bible's New Testament has many one another passages in it. But I think one of the great things that we are commanded to do is to encourage one another to encourage one another. That's one of the reasons we even have prayer before our lesson. We want to encourage one another. We want them to know that we're praying for them. We want them to know that we're concerned about what's concerning them. We want them to know what's going on in their lives is a concern of ours. And as a result, we want to pray pray about it. We want to lift it up to the Lord. I'll say something again about that is that... uh, Not only do we pray here as a group, but take it home with you and pray during the week about this. Whatever a person's needs are, whatever they raise in our session here, like this morning, 
Take it home and pray about it. We want to encourage one another. Let them know that I'm praying for you. Although we prayed for you in our Sunday school class, but I'm praying for you specifically, personally. Let them know that. One of the things that I've started doing is um, I have access to many people in the church that have different issues. A person may go to the hospital. There may be an emergency situation. I get a note, a message regarding that. And I will stop right then and pray for that. It's always good to stop. Whatever, when, you get, when you hear someone that needs prayer, you know what the best thing I think to do is? Stop whatever it is you're doing and pray for them right then. Why? Why? We have a tendency to do what? Forget. We can forget. We can forget it. Another thing I do, uh, I send, I, I've started sending emails to people. I've sent emails to people in the hospital. I'm not bragging on myself, but this is just something I do. Because when I think about it, when something is going on with someone, they have been pulled away from their normal routine. They have been pulled away from their normal life and whatever it is they're doing. I was in the hospital four nights last, last spring, I guess it was. That was not a good time for me. I'm accustomed to being at home doing something. I could have been pulling weeds out of the grass or something like that. I was taken away from that. And there's some people who came by and visited me. And that made me, that encouraged me. You want to be encur an encourager. Encourage people, especially when they're having trials and challenges in life. We will see what the trial was, or potentially was, or potentially tri potential trial was, and how it could affect these believers that we're talking about here. So we want to be in an encourager. Because these things can be upsetting or disturbing to us. Encouragement is essential to the stability of the Christian life. You believe that? Encouragement is essential to the stability of the Christian life, especially in difficult circumstances or challenging circumstances. A person needs to be encouraged. Now, when Paul and Barnabas were evangelizing and planting churches in the Galatian area, the Galatian region, there were four cities. My wife probably is tired of me talking about this. There were four cities in Galatia that they went to and evangelized and planted churches. Those cities were Antioch, not Syrian Antioch, but Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And they went in that order, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And when they had evangelized each city, the last city was Derby. They planted a church there as well. And they spent some time there. But before they left Galatia, they went back through that same area. They went back from Derby to Lystra to Iconium to Antioch. And let's look at Acts chapter 14, verses 21 and 22. It'll tell us why. Let's look at Acts chapter 14, verses 21 and 22. Paul recognized that he needed to go back because in most of those areas, those cities he'd been run out of because of the Jews. But let's take a look at this and see how it applies in that context. Notice verse 
21 of chapter 14 of Acts. He says, after they, that is Paul and Barnabas, had preached the gospel to that city, that city here means Derby, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So they just reversed their route or their path. Notice verse 22, what was, why they went. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. These were new believers. They didn't understand the trials that they were about to face. They didn't understand the difficulties that they were about to face. They didn't understand necessarily the spiritual strength, the spiritual stability that they would need in order to live a life pleasing to their Lord now. So Paul was strengthening them, telling them, reminding them that through many tribulations, and he says, we must enter the kingdom of God. But they don't have to go through that. And they did. They went through many tribulations. But they will enter the kingdom of God. The true believers will. And we need to be encouraged. So Paul is wanting these believers in the Lycus River Valley area to know the great struggle that he has on their behalf in order that they may be encouraged. That they may be encouraged. Also, he wanted to remind the, these believers of their union with Christ. Let's go back to our text now, to verse 2. He wanted to remind them of their union with Christ. That their hearts, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love. The word that's translated knit together here is a word that means or implies a union with, being united with. This is really something to think about and to focus on. We are, as believers, united with Christ. There is a union, a spiritual, invisible, permanent union between the believer and Christ. It's inseparable. It cannot be broken. No matter what your challenges are, if you're a believer, you have a union with Christ that's so tenacious, it's so strong, that it cannot be severed. It cannot be broken. That's why in Romans 8 it talks about um, nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is something we want to focus on. We want to be reminded of our union with Christ. No matter what is going on with us, we're united with Christ spiritually. And that will remain forever, not only in this life, but forever. That union will remain. And that should be encouraging to us as well. And Paul wanted them to be aware of that. He reminded them, reminded them of that. And where, is, where does this union takes place? Notice again in verse 2 it says, Having been knit together in, in love. In love. That is the sphere in which this union exists. That is the sphere or the realm in which this Permanent, unbreakable, invisible, inseparable union exists. It exists in love. Christ loves us, we love him, and we love fellow believers. There's a love relationship in this being united with Christ. 
We're not only united with Christ, but we're also united with one another. We've all been, we've all been put into, by Christ, by means of the Spirit, into the body of Christ. And we're united with him and other believers as well. The unity is not produced by the believers, but by God himself. This union or this unity is produced by God. And how do we maintain it? We have to be loving Christ and loving one another. That's, that, that is what helps us to maintain it. I think there's a verse near where we are. Is it 2.19 or 2.18? Let's look at two, verse 19 in chapter 2. And not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together, that's our words, held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with the growth which is from God. We're all in this together. We're knit together by God. We're united to one another. We have this inseparable union in the context of love. Love is the bond that holds us together. We're also united in God's truth, or in God's mystery. In this context, that mystery is Christ. As you already know, the term mystery refers to something that has been hidden for the ages, but now has been made known. Mystery, in a short uh, term, is a sacred secret. It's known only to God. It's known only to God until, unless, and until he reveals it or makes it known. A mystery is something that we cannot of ourselves figure out. No matter how smart we are, no matter how worldly wise we might be or think we are, we cannot figure it out. It can only be known by, the, by revelation, by divine revelation. And God has made this mystery known. God has made it known. And what is the mystery? Notice, notice verse 2 again, the end of verse 2. Resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. Christ is God's mystery. And notice verse 3. This is an absolutely an astounding verse. Christ, and then verse 3, says, In whom, referring back to Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's one of the all, more all-comprehensive verses. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. This word hidden here doesn't mean that we don't have access to it. We do. It's a little different from the word back up in, um, it's the same word, but it's used in a little different way. Um, verse 26 of chapter 1, that is the mystery which has been hidden from ages and generations. But notice the rest of the verse. But has now been manifested. It has been made known. It has been made clear. 
It has been revealed. And Brother Mike told us last Sunday, not to everybody, but to whom? His saints or believers or Christians. Everybody don't know Christ. More people don't know Christ than know Christ. We hear the word, people will say Christ, but they don't know who he, many people don't know who he is. Many of the people who use that term, which means Messiah, the anointed one, they don't know Christ. They don't acknowledge or understand his divinity and his humanity in one person. That's an amazing concept. He's the God-man. God-man. That's who he is. He's the savior of the world. And he's our helper. He's the, the one there to help us. He indwells us by his spirit. He's always there. Christ is always there. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us because he indwells us by the Spirit of God. How close is he? As close as he can get. He's in us now. But all the treasures, the word treasure here, a treasures, is translated from the word which we got our English word from, thesaurus. Thesaurus. If you ever looked at it, the can always say it, but a thesaurus it has a lot of words in it. And if you're looking for a word and you want to look at it as a different meaning or a different use, it may have a word and then five or six other words which really refer to the same thing. I use it sometimes. So it's stored. What he means by hidden here is deposited or stored up in Christ. So if you need knowledge, spiritual knowledge that is beneficial to you in order to be living out the will of God and fulfilling the will of God, as Paul prayed in chapter 1, I just want to refer to that briefly. Notice what he says. So that you will walk, verse 10, in a manner worthy of the Lord. And notice what it says, to please him in all respects. The desire of every Christian should be to please the Lord in every respect. So if we need knowledge or wisdom in terms of how to do that in every situation that we may encounter, we can look to Christ. It's in him. We can look to him. We can study Christ. We can read about Christ. One of the things that I started doing when uh, we started, uh, not right away, but of late, when we started going through the book of Colossians, is to read a gospel alongside this letter. Because the gospel records the life and works of Christ. Because sometimes when I'm in a situation and I'll sometimes don't know what to do, and sometimes I forget to call on Christ to help me. But he's there to help me. Because when you read about him in the Gospels, it seems like he always said the right thing at the right time. It seems like he always did the right thing at the right time. I said, I want to be like that. It's not going to happen overnight. But gradually and gradually, I can be growing and growing in that direction. Becoming more like Jesus Christ. To think more like he thinks. To speak more like he speaks. To act more like he acts. And show love and kindness and generosity to people. That's what he did. And we learn about that in the Gospels. Where his life and 
ministry is recorded. So Christ is God's mystery and everything that we need in terms of living the life that pleases him or the life of godliness is found in him. Again, Douglas Moo says this. The Christ, this, is, this verse 3 here is, is, is what he calls the Christological high point of this letter. It's, he doesn't use exalted language like in the uh, hymn, but it's the Christological high point. He goes on to say that Christ is the one in whom is to be found all that one needs in order to understand spiritual reality and to lead a life pleasing to God. Is that what we want to do? Paul says, whether in the body or absent from the body, his desire is to be pleasing to the Lord. And that's the way we want to be as well. And Christ can help us to do that as we look to him and call upon him and to study his word and look more like him. What Paul is saying here is that everything we need to know and all the wisdom that is necessary for Christian life is deposited or stored in Christ. This means that if, if or when someone comes along offering additional information that conflicts with what Christ says, how should we respond? Ignore it. We want to be able to evaluate. We talked about evaluating. We want to be able to evaluate everything in the context of the Word of God. Because Paul is providing information here for these believers concerning Christ because there's a threat. And he wants them to know how to respond biblically. Why should we ignore it? Because we don't need it. We have all we need. Christ and Christ alone is sufficient for us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Christ is sufficient. That's why the theme of this letter is the all-sufficiency of Christ. Now, let me explain. Now, if you are a math teacher, you're not going to learn math from the Bible. Right? You're not going to learn math from the Bible. There's math in it, but you're not going to learn math in order to be able to teach students from the Bible. You have to learn math in a different way. But if you're a math teacher, what the Bible provides for you the knowledge and the wisdom that you need in order to teach those students and relate to them in a biblical way, in a way that pleases the Lord. All that you need, and not only, I mean, to know how to conduct yourself in certain situations is found in this book. It is stored up in Christ, in this book, in his word. And notice, in, notice what it says here, in whom are hidden all. This means without exception. All here means without exception. So when we have problems or issues in terms of not knowing what to do, let us continue to remind ourselves that what I need at that moment is in Christ. It's in him. He is sufficient for us. So he wanted these believers to know that because there were those who were going to come to them, if not already, to try to persuade them 
that Christ is not sufficient. And that's one of the things that false teachers do, is try to persuade the believer that Christ is not sufficient. Usually they want to add something to him, Christ plus. Christ alone is Christ alone. Roman numeral 2, let's go to verse 4. I call this a solemn warning against persuasive argument. Paul says, I say this, verse 4, so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Now there's some debate, a discussion about the word this. I say this. The issue is how comprehensive or how inclusive is the word this? Based on what Paul is saying here and what he said in verse previous verse and what he has said from verses 3 of chapter 1 all the way through verse 3 of chapter 2, I think it covers all of that. I say this. In other words, basically all that he has said up to this point, I think is, is included in the word this. Exactly. I think, you, I think you're right. I think you're exactly right. So Paul says, I say this so that. I kind of like the way that sounds. I say this so that. In other words, what he has said here has a purpose. It has a reason. So that implies purpose or reason. And here it is. That, so that no one without exception here, again, so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument, so that no one, no matter how high-flying or highfalutin they are, or how winsome they are, and how well they can speak, no matter how good it sounds on the surface, they will not be able to persuade you based on what Paul has already said. In other words, you don't need this. You can say, hey, go away. I have all that I need. They will try to persuade you. They will try to persuade you away from Christ. They will try to deceive you. Uh, persuasive argument. Uh, as I was studying this, I, I found that an equivalent English expression is to talk someone into something. To try to talk someone into something. To use plausible sounding, but actually not genuine or authentic speech. speech. They, may add, they may put Christ in there. Yeah, Christ is okay, but you need this. You know, we are a little bit enlightened. Arguments that sound reasonable. They can sound reasonable, plausible. It's also known as beguiling speech. Persuasive argument, argument that sounds reasonable, but are not, but is not. You know, uh, during this time, there were people who went to schools of rhetoric. They were trained in speaking. 
They were trained in persuasive speech. And these people no doubt were. And they could make a good case. They could make a good argument. They could reason very well and try to reason with you to beguile you or to deceive you or to pull you away from your steadfastness in Christ. So that's why we have to know who Christ is and know about his sufficiency. All that we need is in him. Let me just read this verse again. In him, that is in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All that you need to please God or please the Lord is in Christ. All right? So don't be deceived. Let's come to an end now in verse 5. He says, verse 5, and I um, label that one, Roman numeral 3. Believers are, the believers are faring well in the midst of a grave threat. Notice what Paul says in verse 5. For even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless, I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. He's rejoicing. I guess I need to be wrapping this up. At the time of Paul's writing here, he was in house arrest in Rome, so he, he couldn't be there in body. But he said, I'm with you in spirit. I am with you in spirit. Because of the spiritual union we have with fellow believers, Paul was there in spirit because we've been baptized into one body. But at the same time, he had just given them a warning in verse 4, but now he's rejoicing. This is kind of interesting, isn't it? He's rejoicing. Why? Here's why he's rejoicing. Rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Now, Paul was not there, so he couldn't actually see them but this is speaking metaphorically here. And if Epaphras had told them him this, Epaphras had told them about their good discipline. The word discipline here means order. They were doing things in an orderly manner or in an orderly way. Their conduct was orderly. They were worshiping God in an orderly way. They were following the proper procedures. We have an order of worship here. You noticed it? We do basically the same thing every Sunday. We worship in an orderly way, in an orderly manner. And so that's the way these believers were doing. And it goes on to say, and the stability of your faith in Christ. They were very stable, very firm. It's a state or condition of firm commitment. They were firmly committed to Christ. It has to do with steadfastness, unwavering, and the one who possesses this quality of faith is unshakable in the face of challenges. And that's the way we want to be. We want to be unshaken when someone comes to us and throws us something or wants us to throw us something or offers us something that we don't need. We don't want to waffle. We don't want to waver. We want to stand firm in the gospel that we've already received and embraced. So what can we learn from this? First thing I think we can learn is that to be encouraged, to encourage one another. 
that we have the truth of God's word. We have Christ, and Christ is sufficient for us. To stand firm in the gospel, the gospel that we had already received, because it teaches us how to live. And also, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have received is the only gospel that provides hope for life after this one, to be with Christ and with the Father forever. So stand firm, encourage one another, and you will be pleasing to the Lord, living a life that's pleasing to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth. We thank you for what you have told us even in these verses this morning, especially regarding your son. In him, there's hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Father, I pray that you would continue to give us the faith to believe that and to trust in him for all of our needs met. We pray this in his name.